Welcome to Think Aloud, the podcast where you'll hear from the people shaping art and culture today. I'm Harriet Fitchlittle, an arts and culture journalist with exclusive access to the people, places and archives at the Southbank Centre. And today I'm sat up in a box at the Royal Festival Hall with my producer Chika Ayres. We are backstage at the Meltdown Festival where Nine Inch Nails are currently sound checking on the stage. Later in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Bengi Unsal and Rodri Jones, who are two of the people responsible for putting on what must be one of the summer's maddest feats of human engineering in London, this huge festival spanning multiple venues and incredibly complex audience calculations. And as you can hear, yeah, we've got the band warming up in the background here. Chica has spent the week hovering stage side with her microphone and ambushing band members in lifts. So thanks to her, we're going to be bringing you some artists interviews with the people who've been performing here at Meltdown. We will be speaking to electro rockers Vex Reds, cellist Joe Quayle and the troubadours of indie pop Death Cab for Cutie. Meltdown is a festival done the Southbank Centre way, so there's no tents, no mud, unless you count the murky waters of the Thames that are lurking just below us. And rather than an onslaught of every band that happens to be available for touring this summer, it is curated. And that's a horribly overused word, but it really is. Every year, the acts at Meltdown are selected by a different musical luminary. We have had everyone from Elvis Costello to David Bowie, Morrissey, Patti Smith... Last year, MIA curated a festival that was all about borders. And this year, in the 25th anniversary year, it is the turn of Robert Smith, lead singer of The Cure. He has programmed what he terms 10 delirious days of music, which translates into six stages, 90 acts and 32,000 tickets sold. We have had to retreat slightly from the main stage because the band really amps up the volume on the sound check. I'm here now with Bengi Unsal, the senior contemporary music programmer at the Southbank Centre, and Rodri Jones, who is the producer of Meltdown Festival. We are about halfway through the run, so it's a miracle that we have got you both here together. Bengi, Rodri, how have these 10 delirious days, as Robert described it, been for you so far? Have they felt delirious, enjoyable? Have you actually get to see any of the acts? Yeah, actually, I try to see all of the acts as much as possible, go to the sound checks and then just walk around between menus. It has been quite an enjoyable ride for me. And that's because, in a way, your work is over, isn't it? You kind of do the beforehand bit, you get get everything sorted, uh, choose what's going to be happening. Rodri, you probably have more to do whilst the festival's been on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of my work is, is in the build-up as well, but obviously with a festival of this scale and sort of so many moving parts, you just never know what's going to come out of the woodwork or what's going to have to change at the last minute. So it, we have to be really uh, reactive and, and even after sort of... Five days in, you never know what's coming. So it's that sense of uh, having to be in the right frame of mind for making fast decisions. And you're going to share any of the details of things that you've had to react to first. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, surprisingly for the Libertines, it was actually the drummer Gary who um, raised the stress levels for the, the concert this time around. Because we actually had fallen in the shower the evening before the concert and he thought he was all right. But as the day progressed of the show, his doctor was really worried that he might have fractured his wrist. So we're just having these kind of every half hour updates about we think it's all right, we think it's not going to be right, or how do you think it would go down if this was a purely acoustic set? <laughs> um, 
At which point, you know, often these questions, there is no answer to it. You know, we're just, <laughs> me and Bengi will just be like, that sounds all right, or I'm not sure, or can he, why doesn't he just play? Uh, <laughs> ultimately, he, yeah, he just decided to do it, and I thought it was going to be like him sort of playing at about 30% or something like this, but he was absolutely hammering the drums. It was yeah, just he played 200%, basically. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was unbelievable. Did you check back in on his wrist the next day? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good idea. <laughs> we'll do that now. We'll do yeah, that we'll now. Do that. <laughs> so, Bengi, this is your second meltdown that you've been involved in organising. You were involved in MIA's meltdown last year and then Robert Smith's meltdown this year. Tell me a bit about what goes into choosing the curator. Obviously, you want someone who's got the profile, but you're also kind of leafing through their autobiographies, trying to make sure that you're not choosing an act who's burnt all their bridges and, you know, won't be able to pick up the phone to any contemporaries. How, how do you think about it? Maybe I should be taking that into account, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I probably it's like the least thing that I think about. I try to just look at how much of an influence they had on the music music industry, basically. Who have they influenced, who have been influenced by them, their impact. I try to just think of their world as a whole. Were they just doing music or did they do production? Were they involved in art? Just like try to look at all the components and then come up with an order of things. What was it in that case about... Robert Smith that made you, what was it that really excited you about him beyond the fact that he is a very famous and very iconic and recognisable musician? The fact that he has, I think he's very curious, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, oh, that's a good pun though. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, because he worked with a lot of musicians, he just has this huge, amazing musical world. And also the fact that it was Cure's 40th year anniversary this year. So I think that's actually one of the most important things when you're getting your curator. Robert has been here throughout previous meltdowns. He was here as an audience member during David Bowie's and Lee Scratch Perry's meltdown. So he knows about the festival. It was an easy choice. Mm -hmm. And Roger, I read the Robert Smith's wrote, I don't know if he wrote by hand or if he wrote by email, probably email more likely to all the people who he wanted to be in the festival programme, kind of sent that initial begging letter. How do you work with a big name curator like that in terms of the practicalities? Again, it's mainly Bengi's field in terms of this happening, but the way it worked with Robert was he sent these personal invitations out, which immediately makes things 10 times easier for us because it immediately when you have that buy-in from artists, Agents then have to at least investigate the ideas. I mean, you, you can often overcome things like festival exclusivities this way. Mm. It's a personal connection between the curator and the artist that they're asking. Some curators are more, are more inclined to do that than others. Often curators will, will send a wish list and, and that will be it. So the, the fact that Robert was so keen to, to make this a personal thing is, is kind of how we've managed to get this insanely legendary lineup this year. You know, Manic Street Peaches, who they were here last night and people here worship them to an incredible degree and they have that level of respect and admiration for Robert so it's just this kind of insane levels of rock godmanship in the in the building for this year especially so having that invitation is just a massive thing and, and that and like Bengi said that level of investment in the festival if you've got that then that's when you can make really special things happen. And it probably changes quite a lot every year then without naming names some years you do kind of get hands at a Santa's list and you two go off or your teams go off and do the dog's work and I suppose you probably don't know until you 
meet the curator and start the process what sort of person they're going to be to work with. So this has been a good year. Yeah, I mean, we didn't meet him <laughs> until we had the lineup, but we had a phone conversation with him and we had multiple emails going back and forth. But when we first received the wish list, it was like probably Rodri and me going, oh my God, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you must be kidding me. It was yeah. like this legendary list. And we're not so far off from that list, to be honest with you. I think and you said the Rolling Stones, the only yeah, one struggled Yeah, unfortunately, with. Rolling yeah. Stones <laughs> said no. It but took them yeah. a while, though, actually. It took them a while. They didn't say no immediately. They said, um, I think it was Robert's lawyer spoke to their lawyer in the classic rock and roll way. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think Mick just basically said, we're not going to say no, but I, I imagine that's a, a good problem to have if it turns out that we can play it. That's one of the sort of challenges that you face if you're Mio Bengi. It's like, right, we think we've sort of plotted everything out, but now we just need to quickly think about what if the Rolling Stones <laughs> said yes. <laughs> so it's just like, we're just having the back of our minds where they might play. I mean, we've still it, got a few days left. Then, so <laughs> yeah. Put it out in the bag. Yeah, never say yeah. never. Yeah. Is that, is that the sort of background <laughs> noise you were hoping for? <laughs> the tea <urn> going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not quite so rock and roll, is it? First world problems. <laughs> Obviously, looking at the lineup of this festival, there are some things that you might expect, kind of like a, a moody rock vibe. Obviously, like you said, we've got Manic Street Preachers, we've got My Bloody Valentine, we've got Nine Inch Nails, Placebo. Tell me a bit about the inclusions that surprised you or where you had to kind of think a bit about what the link was between Robert and the acts that he was interested in i mean i would say some of the bands that he booked and some of the bands that he, we wanted to get for the festival he has a lot of international acts and those bands i was like when i saw them on the list i was surprised because he just such listens to such a taste. broad musical taste he has i definitely was surprised by those acts and just the broad scope and international scope of his taste but also i think the beauty of meltdown is the only unifying factor you actually need is the curator, not only in the musical spectrum, you know, across arts, whatever they're interested in, we try as far as possible to give them that scope for programming. Do you think there are some real diehard Cure fans out there at the moment pouring over the program and trying to kind of work <laughs> out the exact links and logic <laughs> between all the acts that are on show? And I think they know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really quite rare, I think, in this day and age to have a, an artist like Robert Smith who manages to maintain his privacy and only talk mm. publicly when he needs to. And I think that just makes his diehard fans even more desperate to know every last thing about him. It makes our lives so much easier because audiences will go and see bands that they've never heard of. And off the back of Meltdown, I think I'm right in saying The Cure, and Robert Smith's been inspired to make new music with The Cure, which must surely be the most exciting things that either yeah. of you have on your CVs. <laughs> Actually, inspired a new album. Yeah, he just, he, he said in an interview that he listened to 300 or so band, new bands for this, which made me feel like really, really good because I was like, hey, I pushed him to <laughs> listen to some new music. And also he said he was inspired and as an outcome, he wanted to write new stuff, which is, I think, very flattering. Well, I hope you both get an album credit. <laughs> <laughs> so I once read this lovely description of The Cure as being the black 
plaid Pied Piper of adolescent depressives everywhere. And I think you could probably add to that, you know, angsty adolescents, lovesick adolescents, just like adolescents who were feeling anything really in the late 70s. And we're now going to hear from a band who played a very similar role for me in my youth in the noughties. Death Cab for Cutie kind of took my generation's experiences of love and loss and filtered them into something that felt far more poetic and poignant than I think those teenage feelings ever really merited. Bengi, this was a really big gig for them, wasn't it? Death Cab coming to the South Bank Centre. Yeah, definitely. Um, When we asked them, actually, they didn't have any plans to tour. They were in the US and they basically said, give us two days and then came back to me and said, actually, we're releasing an album. We want to do this gig. Give us two more days. I said, okay. And then they came back and said, we're building a European tour around this and we're going to do it because we really want to do it. So, yeah, it was a special gig for us. It was a special gig for them, I think. Uh, When they came out of the stage, they said it was one of the best gigs they've done. They loved the venue. They loved the audience. They loved to be the part of the festival. Also a very special gig for Chica, who uh, we've been informed cried throughout the entire thing. We think they definitely did their job that night. Yeah, let's play a clip of the interview that Chica did with Dave Depper when she was slightly more composed than she (laughs) evidently was on the night. I'm with Dave from Death Cab for Cutie. Hello. How's it going? Really well, thank you. So we're sat here outside QEH. Right. We've got a FIFA World Cup boat in the background. I know, the ambience we need. (laughs) Is that Waterloo Bridge right over there? No. No? That's that's Waterloo Bridge. Oh, okay. So, this is the first time you have ever been to South Bank Centre. It is the first time I've been to South Bank Centre. First time you've played or ever been before? Well, so I lived in London in the summer of 2002 for a university student work abroad program. And it happened to be the year that David Bowie was curating the Meltdown, and there were posters everywhere. And David Bowie is my number one favorite artist of all time. I know some people say, like, I love David Bowie, but David Bowie is a very serious... You're a genuine fan. I'm a genuine, deeply devoted fan of David Bowie. And did you go? No. I, <laughs> Great it, uh, Tickets here. obviously were sold out within minutes. I was broke. I was 21 years old. And... So I bought a poster for it, and it's been <laughs> hanging on my wall like since then. It's still in my bedroom, this really cool poster of David Bowie's, David Bowie's Meltdown 2002. And so when Robert Smith asked us to do this, it was like the most amazing movie moment, perfection, life coming full circle sort of thing. So, so were you a Cure fan? Yeah, absolutely. Not, not as much as Bowie, but definitely a big Cure fan. Mm-hmm. Ben and Nick in the band are completely obsessed Cure fanatics so this is especially exciting for them but it's very exciting for me and what was it like what did it feel like when Robert Smith asked you uh I was kind of in a bit of disbelief and he wrote us an email uh like a very personal email talking about how honored he was to ask us to come and how much he loved us and it was super surreal for me to be reading this thing and then there was some question as to whether we could make it work because it's very expensive to get over here for us with all of our gadgets Mm -hmm. and stuff I mean, it, it felt crazy to be like, maybe, to Robert Smith, <laughs> but we had to say maybe. Anyway, we figured Looks out a bunch your, of things to make it work. Your EasyJet options. We, we all, <laughs> everything fit in one EasyJet, yes. <laughs> no, we made it work. We added a couple of the shows and, and some promotional things, and it happened to be serendipitous that our new single came out last week, and so it all made sense, and we were able to do it, and we're very excited to play tonight. 
because your album, your new album is out in August, isn't it? Correct. And in Amsterdam, not last night, the night before, you played your new single. We did. We played the new single, Gold Rush, and another new song called Summer Years there. What about tonight? Anything else? Tonight we are planning on playing those two songs and then also the first song on the new record, which is called I Dreamt We Spoke Again. And that'll be the first time we've ever played it outside of the studio. Nervous? Excited? Super excited. I love all those songs. We're in this kind of very exciting but frustrating period where we have learned all the new songs. We're super excited to play them because we've been playing the other songs a million times and we love all these new songs, but we can't really play them yet. We're playing a few, but we don't want to show our hand before the album comes out. Or, okay. So, You've sound checked here. Yep. Uh, so what do you think of the venue so far? Oh, it's amazing. Uh, it looks beautiful, and even more importantly, it sounds incredible in there. Like, it's just a treat to be on that stage. And venues always sound better when there's bodies and seats, so I imagine it'll only get better tonight. Yeah, the vibe couldn't be happier f- for us today, so... I'm, I'm well excited. That's good. <laughs> uh, I know that personally, my emotional teenage years, this is all, all my dreams come true. Hey, I get it. I was a big fan of Death Cab for Cutie as well. And then, <laughs> and then look at you. And look at dream. me now. Living the dream. We have, we have a, a company in the US called the Hair Club for Men. Have you heard of this? No. Uh, it's like a, for balding men, it's a, it's a hair transplant service or something like that. I but. Mean, you have to- I have to say, you've got a fantastic hairline. Thank you very much. Well, in the 80s and 90s growing up, their big commercial was the owner, the, the CEO of the company would be like, not only am I the president of Hair Club for Men, I'm also a member. So <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about this fan. Not only am I a huge fan, but now I am a member. Finally. <laughs> wow. I know which one I'd be more proud of being <laughs> that hairline. So pre-show, how are you feeling? Good. I didn't go too crazy at the dinner buffet, which is always a bit of a challenge, mm. and that never leads to a good show. Sure. So it's nice to be here on the banks of the Thames. The about sky to is rain. beautiful. So it's about to rain. It's, so we'll, well keep I think this. I'm feeling it a little bit, but it's warm, pleasant summer rain. Good. Excellent. Always optimistic. Um, so <laughs> your last album came out in 2015. Yes. What's been your writing process for this new album? Well, it kind of starts very much with Ben. He started writing songs for this album probably in 2015 or 2016 at the latest. Like We were definitely on tour for the last record when he started sending us songs, and he wrote way more songs than we needed, probably 30 or 40 tracks. So how did you decide? Some were very obviously not the right fit for us. Some immediately were the right fit, and then things kind of fell into place once the theme started emerging between the songs and what unified them. And it's a very democratic process. We all just kind of have our say and vote on what we thought would fit. And happily, I would say seven or eight of the songs that ended up making the album were kind of unanimous, like, oh, obviously this, this song is going to happen. And then the final ones, there was kind of in, input from the producer and our manager and stuff to sort of break some ties here and there. There were a couple songs where various members had some extra input. Like I wrote the bridge for Gold Rush and Jason came up with kind of a defining drum part for Summer Years and he's a co-writer on that song, that sort of thing. But Ben is definitely the songwriter in the band for the most part. And what about the songs that weren't chosen? Are you going to do anything with them or are they kind of just... Uh, Well, there are two songs that we fully recorded and mixed for the record that didn't end up making it. Just They're both great songs and I love them, but they were thematic outliers for sure. So I'm not sure what the plan is, whether putting out a single or an EP or, or what, what it's going to be. And then there are a lot of demos that we didn't record that didn't get selected that various members of the band are sort of attached to. And I imagine we'll revisit 
two or three of those at some point for the next album or an EP or... So there's definitely a next album coming out. Oh, yeah. We're, we're not going to stop doing this unless something happens beyond our control. We've never been happier. The vibe is wonderful. It's very brotherly. We're super engaged with the music. And we know that we made one of the best albums that this band has ever made. I feel pretty confident in saying that. I think it's exciting to think about where we can go from here because in some ways this was our getting to know each other record. Mm -hmm. And now that we do, there's a lot of possible jumping off points from it, I think. Because you, you've just announced a tour with your new album, haven't yes. you? European tour? There is a European tour in the best time to tour Europe, January and February. You'll love it. <laughs> I'll bring my parka. This rain's just prepping you for it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know. I love coming to Europe and the UK now that they're separate things. <laughs> um, don't. <laughs> no, I know. It's like, okay, you don't bring up Trump, we, I won't bring up Brexit. We're fine. <laughs> Uh, yes, love coming to Europe, very excited to play. I wish it was sooner, and then I'm sure there will be some festivals next summer, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So how important is playing live to you and the band? Very important. Making a record is fun and all, but it's a very antiseptic experience, and so much of being in the band is the push and pull of energy you get with an audience. You know, we're in a bubble with these songs, we like them. But what really counts is whether the fans like them and seeing the reaction on people's faces when, as they get to know songs is very important to us. And there's nothing I love more than traveling with these people to my favorite cities in the world and playing this music. Amazing. Thank you very much for talking. Well, thank you very Just much. Good luck tonight. Okay, thanks. That was Chica speaking to Dave Depper. I love the fact that he had a Meltdown poster on his wall when he was younger. It's kind of the musical equivalent of that picture of Meghan Markle that goes around Twitter where she's sitting outside Buckingham Palace as a teenager. If only you knew what the future was going to hold. And while we had Dave on the mic, we also asked him this week's burning question. How do you choose a set list? Um, the answer is very simple. Ben makes it. <laughs> It's not a democratic process there. <laughs> when I joined the band, I was so impressed with the sets, though, because his number one concern is giving every single person in the crowd their money's worth, whether they're a new fan that came on board with a single from last year or somebody that bought something about airplanes the week it came out. There's something in the set for everybody. He makes sure that at least one song from every album is represented. So that's kind of the long and short of it. Ben comes up with it. Next up, we're going to hear from Joe Quayle, a cellist who was at the festival supporting two bands, Mono and also Low. Now, to me, Joe Quayle initially seems like an unusual sort of act to have at Robert Smith's Meltdown Festival. She's a British contemporary classical cellist. Would you agree? I mean, how does something like that come about on the programme? Actually, Robert has an interest in classical and contemporary classical music. It doesn't kind of surprise me knowing the backstory, but I might see why it seems like a surprise. But it, it is going to be an amazing, amazing slot, I think, for her, supporting Low and also Mono, which Mono has, I think, the elements of that in their music anyways. Okay, let's listen to a clip from our interview with Joe Quayle. It is a great pleasure and privilege to have been picked by Robert Smith. When I received the email from my agent, I thought that he was joking, um, and so I ignored it for a little while and then rang him up. And then <laughs> when, when it turned out that actually it was serious, uh, I was so humbled, so flattered, and so excited. The other acts playing Meltdown, very, very interesting range of, of artists. Some I know, some I don't know. Um, it seems quite an eclectic mix. 
I covered Nine Inch Nails' The Great Below. I did this a couple of years ago at a big concert that I put on at St John on Bethnal Green. It was a real challenge to arrange it for cello quartet because compositionally it's obviously, it's Trent Reznor, it's quite complicated, but you're dealing with the tonal issues as well and the effects and so recreating that on four acoustic cellos was a very interesting project and I was very pleased with the results. I'd like to play it for him one day. <laughs> feeling very excited. I'm feeling curious as to what I will sense when I'm on the stage, how I will feel, what I will be able to see, what I won't be able to see, because obviously when you get to stages this size, actually you can't usually see the audience unless somebody flips the house lights on. But for me, when I walk onto a stage, it's always a very powerful sensation. And I think it's because of all the other acts that have been there, all the music. I, I f really feel that vibrations remain in a place. Sounds a bit hippie, doesn't it? But I believe this. I feel it. And that's what I'm looking forward to experiencing. If you haven't heard my music before or my sounds, I would say it's cinematic, it's orchestral in some aspects, it's very heavy at times as well. I use a loop station, but the music must have integrity for me. So it's, it's not enough for me to say, right, I will loop, bang, there you go, there's a loop. So I try to use it, it's Boss RC300, so it's a triple station. Try to use it in an exciting, interesting and musically relevant fashion. So uh, the looping is a byproduct of the piece of music that I want to present to you, if you like. But obviously, as a soloist, it's very handy to be able to layer myself up. It's also the ultimate ego massage. <laughs> When I play for audiences now, they consist of people who are into post-metal, post-rock, there's a big classical contingent that come along, there's people who are generally interested in modern music, for want of a better word. What is exciting for me is the response from the classical audiences, but also these other audiences who are used to big bands on stage um, and a lot of noise, if you like, they will listen and they will engage. And it's absolutely a... Um, a two-way street it, and this is different between live playing an, an album version because when it's live I am doing absolutely everything as I create it depends what I'm feeling from the room and so the audience if you like they participate in that and sometimes if it's a more intimate setting I will tell them this as well and it's really possible to connect at which I think making an album is a great thing to do and very necessary but where music lives and breathes is in the live performance. So we're going to bring you one more interview now uh, backstage at Meltdown, which is with Vex Red, a English band who came to prominence around the same time as Death Cab for Cutie, but with a slightly harder edge sound, kind of rock electronica with perhaps emo influences. Uh, Roger, I hear that you've got a bit of a history with Vex Red. Kind of. A very short, very short history in the sense that I was actually due to try out to play drums for them. It was actually this time last year they did a call out for drum auditions I sent my stuff over and uh, I was actually down to I think a short list of three 
And then I couldn't actually go to the tryouts because I was producing Meltdown. So it just goes to show <laughs> the sacrifices I make for my art, you know. <laughs> yeah, so this is like world colliding. How did you feel when you saw them on stage? Were you happy with where you were standing or did you wish you were behind that drum kit? I mean, they were great. Yeah, I, um, I caught a bit of their sound check yesterday. Yeah, they're incredible. I mean, it's just one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> you could have been on the line. I was happy for them. <laughs> <laughs> Sliding towards the line. Let's listen to the interview that we did with lead singer Terry Abbott and Vex Red bass player Keith Lambert. We got a Facebook message from uh, someone that was helping Robert curate. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a bit of a wind up initially. And yeah, so we were just sort of blown away. And then I think it took a little while before we, you know, before anything actually happened. Before we even had the good news, my wife said, have you heard who's curating Meltdown Festival this year? And it was like, Amazing. Well, our relationship with Robert is kind of twofold in the sense that, yes, we're massive fans of The Cure, but we, ha we share a connection, and that connection is a, is a producer that we worked with who produced our first album, and he's a guy called Ross Robinson, and he is self-confessed Robert's biggest fan, and he told us once he'd spent his entire career trying to replicate disintegration. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Didn't he? Yeah, pretty much. Well, that, once you know it's, that... It's such a great sound yeah. he's got. If you, if you listen to Ross's work, once you know that was his mission, it, makes sense. it does make total sense. Yeah. Everything from At The Drive-In to Deftones, they all basically share some resemblance to disintegration, basically, yeah. don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I've only met Robert Smith once, and that was when... I've got a beautiful vintage Vox AC30, like a full mahogany cabinet, limited edition thing, unbelievable. And he borrowed it when they were recording their self-titled album in Barnes. And I took it, took it up there and I, I was very nervous about meeting him and the band. I took my dog with me and my memory is that they just feeding my dog digestive biscuits. <laughs> um, and just sat in the, I was in the studio like, this is really, this is a bit weird. In a good way, you know, like, oh man. I don't think we knew that he was particularly a fan though. What of us? Yeah. No, no, no idea really. No, I mean, um, a bolt out of the blue to be yeah. asked. Really cool. And so we just wanted to just go for it. So we've never played our album from start to finish. We've never done it in order. So that's something we're going to do, but we're going to showcase a few new songs as well. And we've got a string quartet to help us play tonight, of which has been a massive headache for Keith having to yeah. write string parts. Yeah. Terry sort of said, you know, I'd like to do the, the album from start to finish. And there are, there's cello parts on a couple of songs on, on our record and I've a friend of mine who was actually he was a my piano teacher and he plays cello he played at my wedding you know and I just thought oh you know I'll give him a shout and then I spoke to him and he said actually you can have the whole quartet and I thought well that's great how much is that going to cost <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, you know Santiago quartet they're called and uh, yeah they're brilliant and sounding pretty good last yeah, night was awesome. the first rehearsal with them in a bit of a nerve-wracking time, but yeah, sounding good. We did a tour recently with um, Hell is for Heroes, and, and Hell is for Heroes were doing the 15-year anniversary of the Neon Handshake. So we toured with them and A, and, and we did, what, eight shows? Yes, eight no, shows. Yeah. When we got on a stage, we're not performery, if that's that. We're not, not suave, and the guy from A was, it's his thing, he's really good. He's like, he has that crowd eating out of his hand. And sometimes I'd be like, oh, I kind of wish I could do that. But my thing is generally not, not to say anything. It's more presence, I think, yeah. than well, I just think a personality. The music's introverted in a way. So in a way, partly our, 
our performance is more about us and doing the thing we do really to a live audience it's nothing really that contrived is it really i mean obviously we, you know we want to do put on a great show but you know i don't know it's different i guess to to other you know artists out there but it's just it's just what we've always done it's hard to describe really. yeah. yeah i think if we could we'd play in the dark wouldn't we it's yeah. not it's not like yeah as long as i could see i'd have to get one of those lit up bases <laughs> like, like Dougie, Dougie pointer is like the little <laughs> leds or something so i could see what i'm doing Red lights. Yeah. So, Vengi, Rodri, I'm going to let you go in a minute and get back to the hectic lives that you are currently leading with half of the festival still left to run. Before I do that, Vengi, you mentioned that Robert Smith had been at previous meltdowns. I think David Bowie's meltdown and I saw a bit of Lee, Scr- Lee Scratch Perry's meltdown as well. For you guys, kind of, what are your fondest memories of this festival, either this year or in previous editions? I think for me, because I've been here only for the past two meltdowns, one of the moments that I won't forget forever is Young Father's gig, and they were on stage with a choir that we put together. At the end of the concert, there were like probably 250 people on stage, the audience members. It was just like an unbelievable amazing moment and this meltdown yesterday basically I cried at many street preachers it was amazing I do love it how one of Bengi's magical moments is a stage invasion which is basically one of my most nightmare <laughs> nightmare scenarios that <laughs> inevitably happens every year but that's <laughs> but it's all part of the fun um, I think for me I had um it was always on my bucket list to organize a boat party uh, and uh, luckily Guy Garvey sort of forced me to realise that earlier than I, would, than I would have normally chosen to. So we had, yeah, we had an event that went all the way up and down the River Thames uh, in Guy Garvey's mountain. It was an absolutely awesome party for about three, 400 people. And now as a result, I'm an expert in nautical uh, <laughs> restrictions on one of the busiest uh, UK waterways. So if you ever need any advice, you know where to come to. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Think Aloud. We'll be back next time with something completely different as befits the varied programme at the South Bank Centre. It'll be less bands and more books because this summer the South Bank Centre is hosting a festival celebrating 50 years of the Man Booker Prize. I won't give away too much about what to expect, but you can basically anticipate interviews with some incredibly successful and brilliant and inspiring authors and also a literary-themed burning question. If there's a burning question that you'd like an answer to, you can find the Southbank Centre on Twitter at Southbank Centre and me on Twitter at HarrietFL. Ask us on there and we'll see what experts we can rustle up. And you can listen to more of what goes on here on the Southbank Centre's book podcast. Hello, I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the presenter of Southbank Centre Book Podcast. And in the latest episode, I spoke to Gabby Wood, the literary director of the Booker Foundation, about what goes on behind the scenes of the Man Booker Prize. And I also, we have readings from Eleanor Catton, Richard Flanagan, Marlon James and George Saunders, four previous winners of the Man Booker Prize who've appeared here at Southbank Centre. You can find all of that, plus other episodes of Think Aloud as they're uploaded at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts. 